The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. and welcome to another edition of Wizards Half. This is mini-episode 65.5. These are the episodes where we get into all the nitty-gritty details we didn't have time for on the main episodes. Now, we had a great time talking to Dean Compton from the Unspoken Decade. Man, that guy had some opinions, but I felt they were very thought out. I really enjoyed hearing his perspective. If you haven't sought out that interview with the Hero Illustrated staff, we posted it to our social media, so I really recommend you go check that out, just to get the other side of the coin on the comics news magazine wars of the 90s. There was so much in this issue, it was the year-ender, that I wanted to start out with just some fun bits and pieces that the first of which was a top 10 biggest disappointments of 1996. And I'll be sprinkling some more of these lists throughout, but here we go. Number one was Marvel versus DC number three. The whole reader vote became a popularity contest at the expense of a good story. While it was fun seeing the characters from different universes mix it up, there was no way Wolverine should have beaten Lobo. Next time, let the writers write the story. Next, Mark Wade on X-Men. Comics hottest writer on comics hottest title. Unfortunately, Unfortunately, his work on X-Men was easily his weakest, and his six-month stint was shorter than a Liz Taylor marriage. <laughs> Topical? Hey, she was married to this guy, uh, Larry Fortinsky, I believe. Like, that was a huge joke on all the late-night talk shows in the 90s. Wade Garney off-cap. Mark Wade and Ron Garney breathed more life into Captain America than it had seen in practically a decade, creating buzz with fans that saw the book steadily climb the sales charts. Marvel's reaction? Cut the creators loose and take the Heroes Reborn short term quick fix. Professor X as the X-Trader. This attempt at a Dark Phoenix-style story was a bit of a baffler, and now Marvel is planning to write the Professor out of the series? It's been proven that part of what makes the X-Men work is having a father figure like Professor X at the helm. Without him, a vital ingredient is missing. Bad comic flicks. When are we finally going to see a good comic book movie? The Crow City of Angels, Barbed Wire, and The Phantom all sucked. Let's hope the next crop of films, including Batman and Robin and Spawn, are actually worth paying 750 to see. Wow, there's a lot right there. If you think about it, Batman and Robin, obviously nobody's favorite. Spawn, probably mixed reviews. I like it. But 750 for a movie ticket. Ah, those were the days. Can't believe we pay like $10 plus that now. Next, Death of Hal Jordan. To rejuvenate Green Lantern, DC brought Kyle Rayner in as GL, but had to get Hal Jordan, a GL of 30 years, out of the picture. Instead of the hero's death he deserved, they kept him in the background as a nut so villain. This was insurance in case the new direction didn't work out, so they could bring him back as GL. Kyle worked out, and Hal died as the mass murderer Parallax. Next time, crap, or get off the pot. I don't know, that's interesting, so they just didn't like the treatment of the Hal character. They didn't say that Kyle was a bad replacement. Spawn's new face. The much ballyhooed new Spawn face ended up being a minor modification of his old one. For a great designer who breathed new visual life into Spider-Man, McFarland failed to deliver on the hype. 
Wolverine's adamantium. Just get on with it already. Turning Logan into a bestial, noseless animal and still no adamantium is pointless. Get him back to what makes him great, a loose cannon with adamantium claws. And I think most people agree with that overall, so Wizard certainly had their finger on the pulse of the fans. Heroes Reborn, this starting from scratch maneuver by Marvel was unnecessary. The best part about the Marvel Universe is that its continuity is so great. You don't need to blow it all up. And finally, the Superman wedding. DC built a big story on how Lois breaks up with Clark and 10 seconds later they get married? Why? DC's owner, Warner Brothers, wanted comics to tie into the wedding on the Lois and Clark TV show. The result? A rushed forced storyline that was out of place and reinforced a comic industry negative. Corporate suits are the kind of cooks the industry pot doesn't need. So yeah, those were their biggest disappointments and uh, you know, it's hard to disagree. I do feel like at some point we gotta cover the Wade and Ron Garney Captain America. I mean, they just talked about it so much. I got to see if it really was as great as everybody says it was. Now, the other thing here that I wanted to share, they're in their news section here under News Bites, says, play laser tag with the X-Men. Can you imagine playing laser tag with or against Cyclops? Marvel Entertainment and Laser Storm Incorporated have forged an agreement to create a themed laser tag game using Marvel Comics X-Men. Quote, Laser Storm intends to fully integrate the X-Men theme into an all-encompassing laser tag fantasy experience, said Bob Cooney, CEO of LaserStorm, quote, we are planning a whole array of new special effects and intricate designs to go along with the X-Men laser tag games. According to the exclusive multi-year contract, Marvel has given LaserStorm the licensing rights to over 40 X-Men characters to use in the laser tag game. LaserStorm, which has over 175 locations worldwide, plans to both operate the themed game in its company-owned locations and sell the laser tag game to independent laser tag facilities as well. There was no word as to the opening date at press time. Did we ever get this? If you lived anywhere where you saw an X-Men themed laser tag game, you gotta get in touch with us. This is something that we had a lot of family fun centers with laser tag in my neck of the woods, and I never saw anything with the X-Men. I would have just spent all my money there, because I would have worn X-Men shirts, I probably would have bought some costumes just to cosplay during laser tag. Oh man, that just sounds so fantastic. And just like they said, with the Cyclops gimmick as well. You know, you just hold your gun up to your head like you were blasting it out of the visor. Alright, last thing here. This is the second issue in a row where they have an ad for Wizard Presents the Comic Collector 97 CD. Okay, it says powerful software to organize your comic collection. Introducing Comic Collector 97 for Windows. The Comic Collector lets you take control of your comic book collection. Use your computer to track exactly which comics you have, what condition they're in, and how much they're worth. You'll be amazed at the extensive features and the power of this software. The Comic Collector 97 will truly help you enjoy comic collecting even more. All we see is like kind of a bluish screen with some word balloons and some tabs on it. Like it's really not visually impressive. Makes you wonder how much, you know, involvement Wizard really had in this because Ablesoft was the developer. But they say here, new features of the Comic Collector 97, improved interface that is fun and easy to use. Complete reporting gives you clear size reports, scan in your own comic images, update comic prices and collections quickly and easily. So they're saying new features. Was there a Comic Collector 96 but it wasn't sponsored by Wizard? It says here, there is. you can organize and inventory all your comics, adjust your inventory, record purchases, define conditions, and add any new title. Extensive comic database includes all the information you need. From Silver Age to present, over 50,000 comics. Price and data updates to keep your comic collection current. Revalue 
value your collection monthly, quarterly, or whatever you want. Print instant reports with concise results, full reporting either on screen or to your printer. Great tool for insurance purposes, too. <laughs> People insuring those valuable comics. Uh, only $29.95 with this offer. So this is something, if this existed, if it actually ever came out, we need it for the archives. If you ever run into a copy of this, it has some Joe Matarera X-Men on the cover, and it says Wizard, Comic Collector 97, and it's just, yeah. It looks like it's actually maybe from some, like, overpower artwork or something? Like, it, the coloring on it is pretty wild. So, I gotta find it. Help us track it down, won't you, geeks? Hey, and if you do, maybe we'll award you some prizes. But speaking of giving out prizes, let's get into Cap's Kooky Contest. First up here, Tops Comics presents the Blow It Up Contest. The Martians are here. They're attacking the Earth everywhere and destroying one major city after another. So why should your hometown be left out? The simple answer is, it shouldn't. How to play. Tired of the way things are in your hometown? Things so bad that maybe you'd just like to see it blown to smithereens? Then tell us in 50 words or less why you think the invading Martians should destroy your hometown and provide us with a photo of a local landmark, the local high school, your annoying neighbor's house, to be blown up. Winners will be chosen based on quality and creativity and could win a slew of keen Mars Attacks goodies. The Angry Red Prizes. Grand prize? One reader whose reason and photo is best will receive a two-issue Mars Attacks the official movie adaptation series autographed by Mars Attacks co-creator Len Brown, a Mars Attacks eight-issue set, Mars Attacks baseball special, and Mars Attacks Savage Dragon number one autographed by various creators in a box of Mars Attacks tops Wide Vision trading cards. Woo! Second prize, 10 readers whose rationale is still pretty good will each receive a two-issue Mars Attacks, the official movie adaptation series, autographed by Len Brown, and autographed Mars Attacks The Savage Dragon Number 1, and a box of those wacky Mars Attacks Tops Wide Vision Trading Cards. This contest is sponsored by Tops Comics. We think they're actually from the Red Planet. Alright, now the legalese here... Contest open to anyone except employees of Wizard Press, Tops Comics, and their immediate families, or the Unabomber, who's blown up quite enough things, thank you very much. Wow, a Unabomber reference. It does kind of feel like that was missing in all the, you know, current news of the day that they would incorporate into their various commentaries. Wow, the Unabomber. Alright, offer void where prohibited, regulated, or restricted by law in a manner inconsistent with the purposes and rules hereof. Klaatu Nikto Bravo! Alright, so originally from the day the earth stood still, but I think most people these days know it from Army of Darkness. Klaatu, uh, <laughs> Oh, Bruce Campbell, we love you. All right, next contest here. The Two Tickets to Paradise contest says, A little Florida vacation in March is a concept that sounds nice to us. Throwing a comic convention, passes to Disney World, and someone else footing the bill? And you're suddenly talking about two tickets to paradise. Cue any money. I've got
Well, you have your chance for just such an arrangement. The Orlando MegaCon takes place March 15th and 16th, 1997 at the Orange Country Convention Center in, duh, Orlando, Florida. Scheduled guests this year include Peter David, Mobius, John Romita Sr., George Perez, Joe Matarera, Tim Townsend, Bill Tucci, Al Simmons, Spawny Guy, and Brian Polito and various Chaos Comics thugs. With a lineup like that, the con is sure to be a gas. Want to go? You can if you win our, our what? grand prize and then up here it has a bunch of these creators so it says hi i'm steven hughes you'll be going to gator world with me and brian hi i'm brian polito like my hair hi i'm john romita senior and i can draw spider-man better than that guy to the right of me hi i'm todd mcfarlane and i won't be there but you can see spawny spawny guy all right so grand prize one lucky reader will receive a round trip airfare for two that's you and a guest to orlando coach naturally tickets to the orlando megacon Ooh, tickets to Disney World, your chance to head slap Mickey, three nights hotel accommodations at a real swanky hotel with cable TV, complimentary little bottles of shampoo, and tiny soap and stuff, and lunch with the aforementioned Brian Polito and various Chaos Comics thugs. Have tea and cookies with people who do Lady Death. All in all, it's a comic geek extravaganza. Second prize, 15 readers will receive an Orlando Megacon convention program, signed by an array of convention guests. Wow, that really is a big drop-off, isn't it? The contest is sponsored by Skyline Promotions, so we think they're real swell. How to play? Random drawing. Fill coupon. Mail. We draw. You winner? You go. You not winner? You no go. We let you know. Capiche? <laughs> Alright, now the legal travel itinerary. Contest is open to anyone except employees of Wizard Press, Skyline Promotions, and their immediate families, or anyone from that retirement community in Florida that's looking to buy the Charlestown Chiefs. Now, I think they said... Uh, in a recent one of these that it was Jim McLaughlin that was actually putting the jokes in the legal text. So again, he must have been paying attention to all the sports news. Next one here. Offer void where prohibited, regulated, or restricted by law in a manner inconsistent with the purposes and rules hereof. Save us a seat by the pool. Save Morris some... Uh, never mind. Morris? Who are they talking about, man? Okay, Jim, you gotta explain yourself. Someday, if we ever get you on the podcast. <laughs> all right, on to the next one. DC Comics presents Crack the Safe with Catwoman Contest. How to play. It's Catwoman's job to crack safes, but it looks like she could use a little help. Want to lend a hand? Somewhere in this very issue of Wizard is a door with the first of three numbers in the combination to this safe. Where's the door with the number? You'll have to find it yourself, but we'll give you a hint. Look for something in Catwoman Purple. Find this issue's number, combine it with the other two purple numbers found on doors in Catwoman number 42 and 43, and you could win some great prizes. Grand prize? One randomly selected reader who cracks the safe by getting the combination right will win this autograph piece of Jim Ballant original Catwoman art. So this is actually Catwoman kind of leaning over onto a safe and resting her mm, ample assets, if you will say, on the top of the safe. In addition to that, you get uh, the actual original script from Catwoman number 43 signed by writer Doug Mensch, a balance signed copy of the Catwoman The Cat File trade paperback, a Catwoman t-shirt, a Catwoman poster, a year's subscription to Catwoman, and Catwoman's gloves! That's a prize package that'll make anyone purr. Catwoman's gloves. They actually are featured right here. You see all the prizes laid out and just like to have the gloves there. It's, it's awesome. A second prize, 15 other lucky safe crackers will each get 
get a balanced signed copy of the Catwoman the Cat File trade paperback, the Catwoman t-shirt, and the Catwoman poster. This month's contest is sponsored by DC Comics, a catty bunch. And the furry legal text. Contest open to anyone except employees of Wizard Press, DC Comics, and their immediate families, or Eartha Kitten Julie Newmar. Aw, you don't want the real Catwoman to do this? What about Lee Merriweather? Why'd you leave her off the list? And then it says here, uh, Offer void where prohibited, regulated, or restricted by law in a manner inconsistent with the purposes and rules hereof. By the way, Kathy Newman knows the combination, and she says she ain't telling, but we know she could be bought. Kathy Newman? So is that... That must be somebody who works at the office? All right, let's check our wizard guilty parties listing here. Do we have a Kathy Newman? Kathy Newman? Kathy Newman? No, I don't see her there. Huh. Was that some sort of... Of pop culture reference? So weird. All right, on to the last contest here. Event Comics presents the Hangout with Ash contest. How to play. Ashley Quinn, everyone's favorite firefighter, is so cool that we all want to hang out with him. And now you can. Just write in 100 words or less why you want to hang out with him, and you just might show up in an issue of Ash or as Ashley's pal. Very hot prizes. Grand prize, one lucky winner who sends us the best entry will get their likeness drawn as a cameo appearance in a future issue of Ash and get the original page of art in which they appear. Do you realize how friggin' cool that is? Creators Joe Quesada and Jimmy Palmiotti have never given away any Ash pages previously. This will be the only page out there. Second prize, one winner whose entry is still pretty darn good will get a complete set of all Ash and Ash the Fire Within comics published through November 1996, signed by Joe Quesada and Jimmy Palmiotti, and Ash, the Fire Within Virgin Edition, a limited edition of the miniseries containing an original sketch of Ash by Casada and Palmiotti, and a box of the new Dynamic Forces Ash trading cards, plus an uncut sheet from the trading card set. Woo, that's a lot of swag. Third prize, five other readers will each get an Ash t-shirt, an Ash baseball cap, a Casada and Palmiotti autograph Ash trade paperback, a box of Ash trading cards, and an uncut sheet from the set. This month's contest is sponsored by Event Comics, and they know hoes. I'll read into that however you want. <laughs> Contest is open to anyone except employees of Wizard Press, Event Comics, and their immediate families, or the Mighty Quinn. You ain't seen nothing like him, you know. The Mighty Quinn. I doubt anybody knows this, okay? But I actually own this movie on VHS. It is a Robert Townsend movie. I think it's set in Jamaica or something. I haven't watched it. I just have the cover, but The Mighty Quinn. I don't know. Maybe it was a hit a few years earlier. All right, last one here. Offer void where prohibited, regulated, or restricted by law in a manner inconsistent with the purposes and rules hereof. Ash good, fire bad. Oh, it's just watching me some Brighter Frankenstein for Halloween. I love that movie so much. All right, now on to the next segment. It's time for Action Figure Fury. Is that even what we call it anymore? I know we'd put everything into merch madness, but this is just Action Figure Talk. So, we do have another top 10 list, according to Wizard, and this is the Hall of Fame, the best toys of 1996. So, here are their selections. Number 10, the light-up Psylocke. A good representation of the character with decent posability, but what's up with that hair? Thankfully, Toy Biz has informed us that it's re-sculpting her head with better hair. Now, as I recall, that figure basically just kind of had, like, windswept hair was the deal. I wonder if that was their complaint. Number 9 was Captain America. Excellent body sculpted height 
wait, but what's with his head, face? So that figure that they wanted so badly is featured in this section. And yeah, you see that Cap is kind of like, just got an angry bad face and it looks a little out of character. On number eight, Chin Balancing Tick, which was a Taco Bell exclusive. Neat little action figure that hardly anyone saw. Too bad for them. Great for any desktop, but not much play value. Yeah, so it's like this thing that would like balance. You, you guys remember those like birds that when you set them on like a stand and then they look like they're flying because only the beak touches, they're weighted a certain way. It's like that. Number seven is kind of a mystery to me. Sansker from McFarlane Toys. Excellent sculpting and paint job. He looks just like a cool Frank Frazetta monster that Conan should be fighting for dear life against. Yeah, I'm not familiar with that one. Quicksilver is number six. Another great representation of a character. Thank God he's actually thin and not super buff. Number five, Han Solo and Stormtrooper, which was a Fruit Loops exclusive at this time. Put the helmet on him and he blends in perfectly with the other Stormtroopers, but why no blaster? Number four is the Jawa 2-pack. Two words, two sizes, and two guns. That's too much. Number three, Age of Apocalypse Magneto. Best Maggie yet, with great accessories. Just too bad it wasn't the real Magneto. Number two is the Light Up Gambit. Cool depiction of character with great movement and jacket material, but not as detailed as our number one figure though, which was Boba Fett, the best action figure representation because of the sheer amount of detail put into it. Fett could be a little more posable, but just look at that paint job. Now I gotta say, going back to that light up gambit, I had that as a kid and I loved it. You had these things, you would stick the cards that were flying out from his hand and they would have like this light up energy trail behind it. Like that was a very cool figure. And finally, their best toy line of 1996, Star Wars by Kenner. For sheer detail of variety of characters and accessories, Star Wars captures new fans and lets a lot of us older toy collectors reminisce. Now it says here, the figure you thought you'd never see in 1996, but did, Doctor Strange by Toy Biz. Okay, so now how's about Wong and Dormammu? I don't think we ever got a comics accurate Wong figure, but I'm sure we got the Benedict Wong version from the movies when that uh, first, well, maybe they didn't do it till... How actually have has there been a Doctor Strange toy line? I remember the Shang-Chi, but I don't remember. Huh. Interesting. We'll have to check into that one. Okay. A best sculpted figure of 1996. Again, Sansker. From the articulated snake segments to the moving jaw, this spawn-hating vampire takes the cake. Sansker. Again, they love it so much. They must have gotten it tattooed on their arm. A best action feature, Godzilla Monster Roars from Trend Masters, with voice chips recorded straight from the original Japanese Zilla film. Films, this action feature brought new life to the classic monster. And finally, Wizard's Dreamline of 1997, Kingdom Come. There wasn't a comic book series in 1996 more deserving of an action figure line than this future tense look at DC Comics icons. And of course, we did get DC Kingdom Come action figures eventually, as we've gotten action figures of anything that ever mattered in comics. And even those that didn't! There is a little bit of toy news, action figure news of the day. And the big one is Harley's here! For fans of Kenner's Adventures of Batman and Robin action figures modeled in that ultra-cool animated series style, take heart. The line is far from finished. Listening to collector's desires, Kenner is set to release one of the most requested Bat villains, the Joker's mall, Harley Quinn! Based on the character that debuted on the animated Batman series, Harley just looks great in her cute little Jester's costume. Now, the other thing here, I've not heard of this 
this before, is dynamic duo force. In addition to adding new villains to the existing adventures of Batman and Robin line, Kenner has adapted the Cape Crusader and his sidekick into duo force. Figures that come with their own high-tech vehicles, which convert from one crime-fighting mode to another, and link up to form much larger vehicles when you assemble them all together. Isn't that weird? Batman and Robin duo force. It sounds like a toy line they had an idea for. They're like, eh, I don't think we're going to release this. It's too much like Mask or something. And then they just said, fine, just put Batman and Robin in there instead. Okay, and once again in this issue, Toy Biz has two new lines. I feel like they just released those Armor Wars, you know, for the X-Men and Spider-Man lines. Now they're doing a whole new thing. I mean, how many figures could they produce? Spider-Man Electro Spark, okay? Okay, Electro is the villain. Now how does Spider-Man fight him? There is Steel Shock Spider-Man where he is in a gigantic image-looking silver shiny body, just muscles everywhere in a tiny little Spider-Man head. Ridiculous. Anti-Electro Spider-Man, again, very image. It's got giant shoulder pads, leather jacket, mesh, I don't know what he's wearing. And there's Electro Armor Spider-Man where he's got these boots that make him taller and then a big, you know, basically helmet shoulder pad combo with a silver spider on the front. It's all, he's all covered up. You can't even tell it's Spider-Man anyway. Electro just looks like Electro except he's got what looks to be the hand of, do you remember the random figure from the X-Men figures where it just like was a big gun that was his hand except it's painted gold like the rest of his costume? And then Captain America has nothing to do with electricity. It's just the Captain America and they were so excited to get him. He's buff. He looks good. But the other set was X-Men robot fighters and Cyclops looks ridiculous here. He is fighting an Apocalypse drone. So it's like a robot which is like the torso of Apocalypse. Uh, They make a lot of jokes like this in Wizard but it looks like he is squatting to take care of some business. Like it is a bad, bad design. Stupid armor. Can't wait to share this with you on social media. Now Gambit with drone. Gambit looks pretty awesome here. He doesn't have his jacket but his, uh, you know, under armor I guess you would call it that's usually under the jacket is there and he looks really cool. Storm with lightning weather sphere. It's not a costume I've ever seen Storm in but she does look great. Her hair and just like her pose is really dynamic. Terrible. Terrible is the Wolverine with Sabretooth simulator because Wolverine is like so strangely he look he looks like a troll. Like I know he's supposed to be a little guy but he looks like a troll. His head is giant. His legs are tiny. His arms seem too long and is just the worst looking pose and the Sabretooth robot is like just a gold robot and then it's got a little Sabretooth head in a jar on the top. <laughs> I can't believe it. Uh, but this last one here Jubilee with Sentinel Hand. There is a thrift store near me that is like half antique store, half thrift store, and they have had this Jubilee, you know, robot fighters figure on the shelf for 10 bucks for a year. I don't want it, but I see it every time I go in. I'm like, couldn't you be a better figure so I would buy you? But anyway, it just it cracks me up. But hey, Toy Biz, thanks for trying. Thanks for giving us something to laugh about all these years later. Just closing out here, do you like lists? Do you like action figures? Then we got something special for you here. This is a list that was included in the toy chest section of Wizard. We actually recorded a little extra with Dean from the Unspoken Decade at the end of our main recording. So I'm going to drop this in here for you now. It's a fascinating piece of Wizard history. Check it out. As we close out here, Dean, you didn't pick uh, the action figures that you helped make. And I just want to go through this real quick here because it's fascinating. You know, Wizard, we have not covered it 
except for like once or twice in their, you know, toy section, they've always had this sidebar, which was their wish list. Like really since the early, early days, they've been saying, we want these figures. We want these figures. And this is the culmination of that after existing for five years. They say, since wizard number 55, your letters have kept piling in for the top 10 action figures you'd love to see. And as we go to press with this here year ender, we're proud to give you the skinny on all the action figures you helped make. No kidding. The various toy companies tell us that they read wish list. So don't think your votes haven't made a difference. Thus, we're proud to give you the following wrap up for 1996. So I just think that's huge that the toy companies are paying attention to wizard. For example, uh, there's Captain America. And in this issue, they reveal there is finally a Captain America coming in the Spider-Man line. Then Aquaman, which is part of the Total Justice line with the harpoon hand. Electro, which is also in this new Spider-Man Electro Spark line. Hulk, when the Incredible Hulk now had his TV show, had the toy line and everything. Uh, Captain Christopher Pike was being made by Playmates for the classic Star Trek line. Green Lantern, again, part of the Total Justice line. We got our Kyle Rayner figure. Juggernaut, and they said, a good one! Saying that original one kind of sucked. <laughs> Got him up on my shelf over here. Me too, uh, I love it. Then there's the Tusken Raider for the Star Wars Power of the Force. Gorn, a classic Star Trek alien. Bane, a good one. <laughs> Legends of the Dark Knight. They actually highlight it here. They have a picture of it. Mystique, that one, uh, I mean, it's fine, but the line it's a part of, the mutant monsters line where oh. you... <laughs> strapped on claws and masks to X-Men figures, the tournament of monsters. I don't know. And then we talked about this last issue, Quicksilver being part of the mutant armor line. Daredevil as part of the Marvel Universe. They're saying a 10-inch figure. Uh, then Electra, who was the light-up Psylocke repaint. And finally, that there was a Jean Grey figure as part of the Marvel Hall of Fame, which was another repaint. So you did it, fans. <laughs> Here was your forum and you got all the figures you wanted and it never stopped. Now there's been every character ever. <laughs> yeah, I think about that all the time, how important these toy things were in like Wizard and Hero Illustrated where people would like custom make toys, but you don't really have to do that anymore. Like if you want the Captain America from Captain America 173, where, you know, the, the star on the shield was three quarters of a different way. Hey, we make that now. Yeah, it's wild. So just again, speaking to the influence that Wizard had, did Hero Illustrated ever have such an influence, Dean? Ooh, the final nail in the coffin of Hero <laughs> Illustrated. <laughs> I think that they, I think that like... Their toy, uh, their toy sections were pretty much the same, to be honest yeah. with you. Just like the letter art and the art, those were all exactly the same. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> all right, on to the next segment. Now, I teased this on the last mini episode, and I certainly talked about it in the main episode as well. Been reading some Carl Kiesel and Carrie Nord Daredevil, so it's time we get into Robin's Reading Rainbow. So in this article here called Devil of a Time in Wizard 65, you have Carl Kiesel being interviewed and he really lays out right away some interesting takes on Daredevil and his philosophy in writing the book. He says, quote, Daredevil is Bugs Bunny. 
Say what, Doc? Not a likely comparison, but believe it or not, that's what Daredevil writer Carl Kiesel came up with when he thought long and hard about what makes the Marvel hero unique. Quote, The problem with Daredevil is that he's a poor man Spider-Man, he explains. Let's face it, let's say it flat. He isn't as fast as Spidey or as strong, and he swings around, so I first had to figure out what makes Dee Dee different from Spidey, which leads to his archetypes. Quote, Spider-Man is Daffy Duck because Daffy is funny when he loses, Kiesel explains. Quote, Bugs is funny when he wins, and that's my approach to Daredevil. He always seems to be in charge of the situation, whether he really is or not. He has the unflappable coolness of Bugs Bunny. So there you go, right there. The philosophy for this run of Daredevil in 1996 was that he was Bugs Bunny. Okay, so we are going to get into it here as I read a few issues, and I'm going to tell you my thoughts about Bugs Bunny, the rabbit without fear? Wait, 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 guys, I got it, I got it. Hair devil. Huh? You know, like a hair, not a rabbit, but a hair, H-A-E-R? Oh, I kill me. All right, on to the review, on to the review. So as far as my history with reading Daredevil, it's been very scattershot. Which is to say, I haven't really read any of the good stuff, you know? Everybody talks about the Frank Miller run on Daredevil. Never read it. Everybody talks about the Kevin Smith, you know, Marvel Knights Daredevil. Haven't read it. Okay, what have I read? Well, when I was a kid, I picked up all four issues of The Last Rites Saga. I remember there was like a Fall of the Kingpin storyline I picked up one or two issues of. And then recently, I actually did find a big stack of Daredevil comics from like 1986, 1987, like a run. I think it's like 239 to like 251 or something. So I have quite a few to dig into and read. I just have not gotten into it. Of course, I enjoyed the Daredevil Netflix series. I actually like the Ben Affleck movie only the director's cut version, but I do like it where he gets to be a little bit more of a lawyer and a detective. So as I came into this Carl Kiesel and Carrie Nord run, it really was it for all intents and purposes, what my exposure to Daredevil would be. You know what I'm saying? Like if if I'm going to read, you know, a big block of issues from them, I'm really going to get to know it. And I was pleasantly surprised. Like again, the reason we're doing this is because Wizard's been saying, oh, you know, this is something you got to check out. They've revitalized the character. Don't miss out, blah, blah, blah. So I finally read it. And here's what I found interesting. So Carrie Nord was announced as like the new artist. It's a nice fit. It is in no way like super detailed. In fact, the faces, although distinct, are kind of like blank. Like everybody feels like, uh, I don't want to say a cipher because that means to say they seem soulless, but they are just kind of like a representation. They are there, but it's the words that really like give them emotion and excitement. Whereas the art is just kind of like, okay, the figure's here, the figure's here, this is happening here. If that makes sense. Like the art does not register any emotion for me. I'm not necessarily saying that's a bad thing. You could read into that. It's an artistic choice and maybe Matt can't see emotion. So maybe we're not supposed to see emotion. I don't know. Is it a deficiency in his art style? He was young at this time. So I have not seen any current work to compare it to, but getting into the story itself, Carl Kiesel is everything they promised. Like, obviously, I remember, like, you know, his work on Superboy and things like that. And I have read the Hawk and Dove series that was Rob Liefeld's kind of big break into mainstream comics. But I feel like he definitely has just a very solid storytelling ability. Not only can he give you dialogue and humor that is fun, which we'll get into in just a second, but each issue is concise storytelling. It is as a beginning, middle, and 
end, even though there are continuing storylines, but they really are solid comics for what you would want. Like, if you're just going to get a monthly comic that is Villain of the Week, it 100% delivers in the most entertaining way. So that was just to set the stage, but as far as where the character is at at this moment in time, so Foggy Nelson has just finally found out that Matt Murdock is Daredevil. Their relationship is kind of a little bit rocky because of that. He's like, you didn't trust me all these years, your best friend. But also in the meantime, they have an offer to have their firm bought out by Rosalind Sharp, and they call her Razor on the street. Like, she is a female lawyer who is much older than them, but very established, has a reputation for being ruthless, and she is, like, very cold. She's all business. She doesn't mess around with them, and she is a character that just kind of comes in and says, hey, you know, you want to join up with me? I think you're both talented. Now, the big revelation that comes out of this arc, I'll just jump ahead a little bit, is that Rosalind Sharp is Foggy Nelson's biological mother, but then he was raised by the Nelsons. So there's a very interesting interaction where Foggy's adopted mother comes to his office and they kind of have a showdown where the two moms are going at it, which I found really interesting, just this dynamic, because basically Foggy is accepting this offer and Matt is willing to go along with it to have, you know, his mother be their boss. Now, as far as this defense of Mr. Hyde, because that's the the first thing she puts on the table. She's like, we're going to do this. It's high profile. You can get it done. You know, she has her reasons. Now, Mr. Hyde is like accused of killing a girl in this warehouse. And then later on, Pyro is hired by somebody to burn the warehouse down and get rid of the evidence. But Mr. Hyde all throughout is maintaining his innocence. He is saying, it was not me. Oh, I do a lot of evil things, but I didn't do that. Like somebody is setting me up and all of this. Now, ultimately, we find out that it was a character named The Eel who joined up with the Enforcers, who were these super early 60s Marvel, like, just henchmen, but they were a group of bad guys that would get into various scrapes with Daredevil and Spider-Man and things like that. And The Eel is this guy who's like a second-rate Electro, which seems to fit in very nicely with at least Carl Kiesel's opinion that Daredevil is a second-rate Spider-Man. And so he's setting everything up, and he's the one who actually killed the girl to get back at Hyde for his reasons. All of that is fine. Like, it's wrapped up. It's it's over several issues. All the mystery is unraveled in those things. But what gave me the greatest confidence in Carl Kiesel's writing and the cleverness of his storytelling is that once Mr. Hyde is a free man and on the streets, you see he's immediately up to no good. There's this young couple that passes by. He's about to kill them. You see him kind of stalking them. And then Daredevil shows up. And Daredevil basically makes it known, hey, you're free oh, I see you got off the hook, but guess what? You are in no way going to be free to do evil anymore because these two people are actually part of my network of folks who owe me favors. People at Hell's Kitchen, people in New York that I have saved and I'm cashing in my favors. You pay the devil his due is how he puts it. So he says, I've told everybody to keep an eye out for Mr. Hyde and the minute you see him up to no good, you tell me and I'm going to swing in and stop him. So Mr. Hyde's all frustrated. He's like, ah, all these eyes on me and he runs away. But that is something that was so exciting to me because that is a key component of The Shadow. That is something, if you know The Shadow, the old radio serial and pulp novels, he had a whole network of people around the city of New York that worked for him. Again, that he had rescued, that owed him favors that he could call in at any time. So I just thought that was a fantastic 
element of Daredevil and the way he operates, being in, you know, the devil of Hell's Kitchen, you know what I'm saying, being so integrated in the neighborhood, it only makes sense. But I just feel like I've never really seen that emphasized, that modus operandi, and I think that is wonderful. Now, as the book continues on, you probably wonder about Karen Page. What are they doing with Karen? Well, she and Matt are back together and dating at this point. They're both very freewheeling and fun. I love their snappy dialogue. They have a lot of banter it's back and forth that's really endearing. They really seem to get along well. There's not all this drama. You know, I hate when comic books like make the romantic characters like in the middle of fights all the time or nagging or whatever it's going to be. It's just like, no, why can't they just enjoy each other? There's a reason they want to be together, right? There's a reason they chose to be in the relationship. Why are they not supporting each other? Why are they not having a good time together? So Carl Kiesel really captures that perfectly. I thought that was a wonderful relationship. And Karen is working for a radio station late night. And so she is like, I guess a radio DJ in the very early morning shifts. But she makes it a big mystery for a while, which I don't understand. Like, she's like, well, I got a job, but I don't want to tell you what it is. And I don't know if we're supposed to, like, suspect, like, oh, she got back into the adult film industry or something seedy. But that doesn't seem to be the case. That's like the one piece of history I know about Karen Page, right? Like, she had some issues in the 80s at one point. Now, on the last mini episode, when Wizard was criticizing Daredevil, they said that Kiesel was making Matt Murdock, Daredevil, just sound like Spider-Man. And that when he and Spider-Man teamed up, the dialogue was interchangeable. I'm not going to argue that to say that, oh, well, you know, found it to be unique and he had his own voice. He doesn't have his own voice. It could be for any wisecracking superhero. But when he and Spider-Man were together, it was the Ben Riley Spider-Man, like right at the end of his run. And I really found that team up to work very well. I mean, just from the perspective of they actually have jokes about, well, you know, I found out I was a clone, but then I was the real one, but then I might actually be a clone. <laughs> like they, they really just play with the continuity and the back and forth of the clone saga at that moment in time. And yet Ben Riley manages to keep being lighthearted about it. There's not all this gravitas. And overall, that is the thing about this book. They promoted it as kind of the freewheeling Daredevil is back, but I don't think anybody even ever thought of Daredevil as freewheeling or excited. I, I know that in the few comics I mentioned I've read, he was always so serious. He just seemed like Marvel's Batman. He's just gritted teeth and shaking people down. He's like, you're gonna tell me what I need to know, or you've destroyed my life. I'm down in the dumps. I'm out for revenge. Kingpin. Always seemed to be the Kingpin, right? So, to me, like, I really enjoyed the lightness of these stories, because, yeah, he'll fight a revolving cast of supervillains is not that exciting. Occasionally there will be a guest star like Black Widow comes in, but what was so interesting is again, playing with the continuity of the time, this is a Heroes Reborn era Black Widow where most of the Avengers were presumed dead. So now she's super bitter and she's out there hunting down various supervillains and basically harassing them, threatening them with death and Daredevil's trying to talk her down. Now that would feel like it's heavy and Black Widow herself is definitely saying like overly dramatic stuff like oh I am the widow of the Avengers you know what I'm saying like she's a literal widow now because all her teammates are dead you know there's goofy stuff like that but I think it was played purposely in opposition to Daredevil's decision to just crack jokes all the time and try to keep the spirit and the levity uh, of his cohorts up because it's not always like that when he's Matt Murdock he is a different 
character, which is to say, much like Spider-Man and Peter Parker, right? They kind of play things a little differently when they're inside the mask. And so when he's Daredevil, he's freewheeling, he's cracking jokes, he's making fun of the bad guys he's stopping. When he's Matt Murdock, he's kind of like all business. And the truth is, he's getting hassled a lot by this, you know, Rosalind Sharp because he keeps showing up late, he keeps disappearing, and Foggy is making all these excuses for him. But at the same time, because they keep winning cases due to Daredevil's interference or assistance, however you want to put it, where he is giving them tips because Matt Murdock is Daredevil, but she doesn't know that. They say, oh, well, we need to exploit that. We need to have this whole thing where we say we are the law firm that is connected to Daredevil and Daredevil is out there helping us get justice. And as a result, Foggy becomes Daredevil's best pal. You know, like that's kind of like a Jimmy Olsen to Superman scenario where everybody thinks Foggy is so great because he works with Daredevil and he goes on talk shows and he gets interviewed by the press and all these things. So they're always using that to raise the profile constantly. And I think that Kiesel is so skillful in how he balances the action and the storylines. Keeping the cast small makes a huge difference in that. Like, again, I'm not a fan of like during the death of Superman as I was reading those comics for about a year. I just remember there were so many characters during Funeral for a Friend. I mean, like, I don't need to follow like 20 different characters that are friends of Superman. Like, just give me Superman, Lois, the basic staff members that we've come to expect at the Daily Planet. Sure, occasionally have a guest star, whether it's a superhero or a new character coming in for one issue, but I don't know. For me, it, it just gets a little too cluttered, and I feel like Daredevil is foggy, it's Karen, you have Rosalind, Razor Sharp, and then also in the mix for some reason, Liz Allen, Harry Osborne's widow, is dating Foggy Nelson, and there's like at one time some sort of like jealousy and kerfuffle because he's representing a supermodel, and she gives him a kiss, and Liz sees it. Like, that's the kind of stuff I don't want. Like, I was not interested in that so much, but everybody else, just the core cast, I think, is handled very well, and everything seems to work in such a way that, okay, it's supporting the main story and it leads to action and there'll be you know funny moments and even the serious moments are just kind of like hey we really need to pay attention to this you know like Matt Murdock will be like yeah yeah I'm making a joke now I'm out of here I gotta be Daredevil so overall I found this run to be as advertised okay Wizard was not wrong they were not hyping a book just because they wanted to get Marvel's good graces I felt like they really did an excellent job in highlighting a book that deserved it I actually you know I read the whole run because like at the very end like they disappear and I was like wait oh no it's over like I thought they would still be here but I think they were on the book for about a year I think it was about 12 issues and they are solid so anybody looking for a good 90s read I can recommend the Carl Kiesel and Carrie Nord run of Daredevil very satisfying on all levels all right let's get on to the next segment And now it's time to get to know our Mort of the Month, Kite Man.
This supervillain based on kites is pretty tough to pull off. Toss in a green costume, a yellow crash helmet with a kite painted on the forehead, and the villain's real name, Charles Brown. Jeez, was his arch nemesis the kite-eating tree? And it's nigh impossible. But hey, this is a pre-crisis DC we're talking about here. So proving you should take a double dose of NyQuil before creating characters, the kitester's powers were that he could hang glide really well. That's it. No neat magical powers, animal sidekick, or action stick. Just Charlie, his kite, and a dream. I was literally out yesterday enjoying some windy weather with my kids flying kites. So this is very topical for me. But didn't Kite Man have some sort of resurgence lately? Didn't they like redeem him and make him this super deep character in the last like five years over at DC? Somebody tell me about that. I'm sure if Michael was here, he'd be like, oh yeah, Kite Man. Oh, he's my favorite character now. <laughs> Feels like Michael's always up on the latest revamps of DC characters to tell me, oh no, no, he's awesome now. He's awesome. I'm like, okay, I'll take your word for it. All right, as we get ready to close out here, uh, there is another Wizard Profile interview, but this time it's with Mark Hamill. Obviously, the world knows him as Luke Skywalker. Many of us really revere him as the Joker on Batman the Animated Series. But I have two particular credits for me that I always go to first. And that is, he played a detective in the movie The Giver, which was an American early 90s live-action adaptation of the Japanese manga and anime that I have brought up many times on the podcast. So he has a role in that and he is so over the top. He gets turned into a giant kind of cockroach creature by the end. It's it's a very, very fun movie. But also he eventually did this cool like mockumentary, you know, in the style of Spinal Tap or Waiting for Guffman or Best in Show, whatever you associate Christopher Guest with. And uh, it was all with voice over artists so the people that he was doing voiceover work with but putting them on camera and improvising scenes at a comic-con in the mid 90s it is called comic book the movie and i just love this thing it is so silly and goofy if you've never seen comic book the movie check it out but let's find out what he was promoting and what wizard was talking to him about here as the middle child of seven kids mark hamill had to deal with a lot of hand-me-downs however the star of star wars recalls that when it came to comic books the leftovers were first-class pickings. Quote, I got everything from Uncle Scrooge to Classics Illustrated to my older brother's horror comics, recalls the 45-year-old Hamill of his comics upbringing. Quote, I remember being surprised at one point when I discovered Superman comics. Up until that point, I thought Superman was just a television show. Hamill, who describes himself as, quote, more of a comic book historian than a regular reader, grew up on comics and Sunday funnies, but had little interest in either of these as a career. Quote, I never thought of comics as a job, but I would doodle. Girls gave me a lot of attention because I could draw cartoon versions of the Beatles. Hamill turned comic pro earlier this year when the idea of a superhero stumbling through a media-crazed real world found a home at Dark Horse Comics under the guise of The Black Pearl. The five-part series debuted in September and features a Hamill storyline co-written by Eric Johnson with art courtesy of H.M. Baker. It centers on a regular guy, Luther, who after saving an abducted woman is quickly turned into a vigilante hero thanks to the media. What they don't know, however, is that Luther was originally stalking this woman and now he's stuck in a role he shouldn't be in. Quote, The Black Pearl was originally written as a screenplay, relates Hamill. When it became a comic, I thought we'd just use the screenplay, but we ended up tearing the screenplay apart and building the story back up from scratch. It was a lot of work. I'll never look at comic books the same way again. Hamill, contrary to media reports, has no problems taking a look back at Star 
Star Wars for the umpteenth time now. He describes the first film, quote, as a pure fairy tale, and the second as deeper, more cerebral, and more challenging. It's the final film of the trilogy that Hamill has problems with. I was set up the wrong way in the third film, he says. I thought that Luke was being set up to go over to the dark side, and that there would be the enticing setup of whether he could kill Han or the princess, but when I read the script, it all seemed awfully pat. I was disappointed in the third film and told George Lucas about it. He told me that Star Wars was a fairy tale, that fairy tales are always tied up in neat packages. Hamill has ultimately had the opportunity to stretch as an actor thanks to his voice work as the Joker on Batman the Animated Series, Hobgoblin on Spider-Man Animated Series, and Gargoyle on the new Hulk Animated Series, as well as playing the trickster on the live-action Flash TV show, and he relishes those post-Star Wars triumphs. Quote, Luke ultimately went through the most changes in the three films, but I'd always hoped for the character to turn him into some kind of exotic monster or seed-chewing villain. I'm jazzed to be getting those opportunities now. Alright, now here we get the interview portion. So first, Comic Red. The first ones that really made an impression on me were the Mad Paperback collections. Favorite comic of all time? I love the early Dennis the Menace. For me, Dennis was the Bart Simpson of the day. Favorite work of your own? I have a real fondness for the Texas Wheelers TV show, and I love playing the trickster on The Flash. The Texas Wheelers. Gonna have to dig that one up. Comics you read? I don't. Last time I regularly bought comics was 10 years ago during the Dark Knight Returns Watchmen period. The one person you'd like to meet? There's two. Stan Laurel and Alfred Hitchcock. Superpower you would most want? Flight. Peter Pan had a big impact on me. Favorite munchie at 2am? Frosted Cheerios. Favorite toy as a kid and as an adult? As a kid, a frisbee. As an adult, my satellite dish. Things you collect? Comic books, model kits, and cereal boxes. I'm a cereal fanatic, but I'm not about to pay $700 for a Snagglepuss Cocoa Krispies box. <laughs> Person you, who would play you in a movie? Polly Shore or Michael J. Fox. <laughs> Holly Shore or Michael J. Fox. That's amazing. Favorite cartoons, Rocky and Bullwinkle and George of the Jungle. Person you would most like to work with, Ray Harryhausen, a pioneer in stop motion special effects. Favorite musical performers, R.E.M. and Pearl Jam. I'm at the point where I'm listening to my kids' music. Favorite TV show, The Simpsons. And of course, we know that he got to be on The Simpsons. Last good movie you saw, The Usual Suspects. Last good book you read, Outrage by Vincent Bugliosi. If you had the power of the Beyonder, I'd want the power to mellow people out. So there you go, an inside look at Mark Hamill in 1996. That was fascinating. Well, I want to thank you all for joining us for this inside look at issue 65, getting more into everything that was contained therein. So as far as upcoming news, what you could look out for, we did record the Pat McCallum tribute special. It was great, a wonderful conversation with his friends and colleagues. So that will be out next week. Instead of a main episode, we're going to give you the Pat McCallum tribute, and then after that, uh, you will get a chance to participate with us in the Jim Lee Tribute Edition special. Lots of tributes going on at the end of the year. So if you have something to say about Jim Lee and you want to be involved in that conversation, if you have a copy of the issue, then break it out and get ready. We'll be sending out the invitation shortly after this episode drops so that you know where and when to meet up with us. Of course, if you want to get a t-shirt you know you want to rock your wizards gear go over to the t public and find wizards the podcast guide to comics if you're not subscribed already to the youtube channel that is a great place to see all of the wizard swag that we are adding uh, from all over the world to the archives and it, it can be a preview of upcoming issues as well uh, stuff that you're not going to see maybe for a while but we're like oh i can't wait till they get to that one of course you could also help us out by giving us a five-star review on you know amazon podcasts 
or Apple Podcasts, wherever you are sharing the word. I will say this, and just a big thank you to you all. Our downloads and just our visibility out there uh, in the world on the internet has really grown this year. Just the Wizards universe is expanding exponentially, and it's all thanks to you for sharing. And so just keep that up. If there's something that interests you, you know, retweet it, share it wherever you have it. And we're excited to welcome all the new listeners in when you finally get to this point. A lot of people, you know, message us and they say, hey, oh, I found your show. I'm starting from the beginning. I can't wait. So it'll be a while before they catch up to the current episodes. But happy binging. And until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.